Welcome to the Real Truth Matters podcast. I'm Dan Harder, your host. The RTM podcast is all about showing you how to live in biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect. And now, here's Real Truth Matters founder and director, Michael Durham. Thanks, Dan. Well, the world operates on faith, and as we've seen, even sinners use faith, and they do so daily. Every day, we all utilize faith. We make scores of decisions based upon faith in someone or something. And as I've said, you could not live or operate in this world without faith. You may call it human faith or natural faith, but whatever you call it, it's still faith. The sinner is not capable of trusting God because of the natural antipathy they have towards God. They just despise Him. They hate Him. They don't want to have anything to do with Him. But that doesn't mean non-Christians don't exercise faith in others or other things. And all faith, whether it is human or divine, whether it's in God or self, all faith has the same components. All kinds of faith have an object. It has the knowledge of the object, and it commits to the object of trust. A very simple illustration is a chair. If I'm to take my rest on a chair, then I must exercise faith in the chair that it can hold me up. That's what we mean by the object of faith. Faith has something or someone in whom it places confidence or trust. But for me to exercise faith in the chair, I cannot just hope that it'll hold me up. Guessing or presumption is not faith. For faith to operate, I need knowledge. I need to know enough about the chair that it will hold me up if I sit in it. The knowledge of the chair feeds faith. I need to know something about its sturdiness, its soundness. I can gain information about its trustworthiness by watching others sit on it. This is what it means to believe in the testimony of others. And there is the knowledge of chairs that I've gained from my experience in sitting on other chairs. Somehow, I need to know something about chairs and apply it to this chair I'm contemplating. Knowledge of the object of faith is a prerequisite to faith. That's why faith is never a leap into the dark or taking a risky chance. No, it's always a step into the light, the light of knowledge. We think faith believes something that is not true, but hoping it is. A blind leap of faith is what we call it. But that isn't faith. No, it isn't. Not at all. The reason many treat faith as a wish or a hope that God will do something for them is they really just don't know God. If you are to exercise genuine faith in God, then God must be the object of your faith. That's what biblical faith is. Faith works because a person knows the object that he or she is putting their trust in. But so many professing Christians really don't know God. And a great many who are true Christians know very little about the object of their faith. Their theology of God is completely inadequate and, in many cases, absolutely wrong. One of the confusing aspects of faith is the sense of certainty we possess when we exercise faith. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'm talking about the feeling of certainty, the feeling of assurance. Is that degree of confidence you have in the object of faith? Confidence is mainly a product of the mind, and feeling is attached to it. 
confidence has a range of probability. For example, you can feel 50%, 75%, or 100% confident about something. Based upon the certainty of my knowledge of the object, the emotion of confidence will be felt to that degree. If my understanding of the truth is more certain, I will feel more certain. If I'm less certain of my understanding, then I'll feel less confident in the object of my faith. Now, this leads me to the wrong approach to increasing your faith, and it's the one approach we've all been guilty of committing. Most believers try to increase their faith by trying to increase their feeling of confidence. But the problem with that is you cannot generate confidence by willpower. You cannot generate confidence by a strong resolve. Greater discipline or willpower does not increase your faith. The will's not designed to do this. It's designed to act. The Word of Faith movement makes this mistake. They get the cart before the horse. They believe that by their confession, they bring something into reality. But the Bible teaches that faith precedes confession and that confession is the byproduct of faith. I confess something to be real because faith is already working in my heart, giving me the belief that it's real. And therefore, I confess it to be real. Confession doesn't make something true or real. Faith makes it real to me, and consequently, I confess it to be true. You see, faith is more than a feeling. And so, as we have stated in our last podcast, there is a biblical method of increasing faith, or as I like to say it, strengthening the faith you already possess. First, you must increase your understanding of God. This is where it always begins. Since God is the object of divine faith, the faith that is given to us by grace, then learning more about our omnipotent God must strengthen our faith in Him. And this is exactly what the Apostle Peter says in his second epistle. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, he greets his audience, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He repeats the admonition in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the knowledge of Christ. The repetition states the importance of growing in our knowledge of God. The Apostle John, writing in his first epistle, expresses the same importance of growing in the knowledge of God. He says it's the reason he wrote the epistle. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write unto you that your joy may be full. 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. John is saying fellowship with God is based upon what we know about Him, and so is our faith. Therefore, you must study the Scriptures as you would a biography to learn a person, to know his heart and what it is that makes him who he is. The Bible is God's communique of Himself. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, and God has spoken to us in the written word from the overflow of His heart. The Scriptures are a revelation, the revelation of a person, 
the Lord God in the person of Jesus Christ. The second biblical method of increasing faith is to increase your experience with the object of faith. Not only are we to learn more information about our loving Lord, but we should experience Him often and strengthen our experience of Him. Let me go back to the illustration of the chair. Let's suppose that I'm standing before the chair hoping that it will hold me up. Should I recline all of my weight on it? That hope is built on specific knowledge of the chair's structure, substance, and strength. Faith always has an element of hope in it. You can have hope without faith, but not faith without hope. Now, I take the action of putting my weight on the chair and resting, and with that, I rest in the chair. Now, the question is, which of these three things, standing in the hope that the chair will hold me, or taking the physical action of sitting in the chair, or resting in the chair, which of these three is the kind of faith the Bible talks about? Well, we know it isn't sitting in the chair because I don't have to exercise faith. It's holding me up. I know it is. Faith becomes strictly knowledge at that point. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, 24, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen, it is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? And so, sitting in the chair is not faith. And the first step of faith, which is standing before the chair, hoping, if not professing, that it will hold me up, is not faith. Why? Well, because I can stand there all day believing it will hold me up, but not take advantage of it and sit This is just the knowledge. The chair can hold me up if I sit on it. And my profession, that it can hold me up, does me no good if I don't act on it. And this is the kind of inferior faith James refers to in his epistle, that if we should say to a destitute brother or sister, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, well, then something is wrong with that kind of faith. James' point is that simply believing with the mind alone that someone can be fed and warmed and doing nothing to help them, well, it's nothing more than knowledge. It's a knowledge that James calls a dead faith. So which of the three actions or positions are really the act of faith? Well, it's the middle one. It's that moment I choose to act upon what I know, and I begin to recline my body. That is the moment of faith. Thus, faith is saying and doing, hoping and acting. Now, confidence in God comes the same way confidence in the chair comes, by knowledge and experience. And this is true about any relationship. Two people increase their faith in each other the more they know and experience each other's trustworthiness. And with time, the sense of surety in each other rises. Knowledge is insufficient by itself. It's got to be accompanied by experience. You see, I can read a person's resume and learn much about them, but how do I know that I can trust that person with my company's responsibilities, resources, and reputation? I really can't be sure until I hire them and experience them firsthand. And as I observe their competent behavior and faithful execution of duties, well, my confidence in them increases. How then do you increase your experience of trusting Jesus? And the answer is very simple. Don't miss it. By the action 
of obedience. Your faith grows by doing what he says and watching him perform on your behalf. And the more you interact with him, the more you see his faithfulness. And the more you see his faithfulness, well, the more your feelings of confidence rise. Trying to approach faith in the opposite manner, well, it just doesn't work. Trying to first increase your levels of feeling sure and confident will never raise the dial of faith one degree. But knowledge combined with experience, well, it always increases your faith. Now, let me give you one more homespun illustration. My reality about gravity is so ingrained into me, and that's why I don't jump out of planes without a parachute. But, of course, I also don't jump out of planes even with a parachute. But let's suppose I wanted to take up the hobby of skydiving. Now, what would I need to do? First, I would need to find someone who is experienced and licensed in skydiving to teach and supervise me to skydive. I'm sure that would involve reading, learning, and studying the sport of skydiving. And eventually, when I had demonstrated to my instructor proficiency in the knowledge of the sport— He would take me up and jump with me out of the plane. Perhaps we would do this several times until I was comfortable. Eventually, he'd tell me, now it's time for you to jump out of the plane solo. Well, the time arrives for me to take my first solo jump. Now, how do you think I would feel? How would you feel if it were you? Would you feel 100% confident? Or do you think you would experience some nervousness and anxiety? I know I'd be highly anxious about jumping out of a plane. But let's say my degree of certainty through my instruction and having the coach latch himself to me and we together jump out of the plane. Let's say that has increased my sense of certainty to about 70 or 75%. I'm almost 75% sure that all will be well, and I won't end up dead from a sudden collision with the ground. And so I jump, and it's a success. The next time I jump, my certainty is about 85 to 90 percent. And after that, I jump eventually with 100 percent confidence that I will land safely on the ground. My feelings of confidence increase as my experience increases. Now, listen very carefully. I'm not saying faith is the feeling of assurance. No, no, it's much more than that. But the more my faith increases, so does my feeling of assurance. My plane jumping story is really not so far-fetched. There is a biblical reality behind it. One report in Scripture bears these facts out. It's the first miraculous catch of fish and what happened to Peter due to the miracle. Jesus wanted to speak to the large crowd that had gathered around him at the Galilean seaside, and so he gets into Peter's boat and asks Peter to put out into the water far enough for his voice to carry as he speaks to the multitude. We read of the account in Luke chapter 5, verses 4 through 10. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, "'Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch.' But Simon answered and said to him, "'Master,' We've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. 
It's quite obvious that Simon Peter doesn't believe that this attempt will net them any fish. He is the experienced fisherman in the boat. Jesus may be the Messiah, but he wasn't a fisherman, but a carpenter by trade before his ministry. However, for whatever reason, Peter decides to satisfy the Lord's request. Perhaps out of respect for Jesus, he humors him and throws out the net, and the Bible says this is what happened next. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. The point is that Peter's faith in Christ was extremely low, at least when it came to the art of fishing. Nevertheless, Peter did what the Lord commanded. He obeyed, which is an act of faith. Faith doesn't require a great deal of feeling, feeling of assurance for it to act. Many years ago, I'll never forget reading a little paperback book titled, Faith Cometh by a Dear Brother and Friend, Conrad Merle. And in that book, Merle illustrates this very point I'm trying to make with you. He recreates the scene of the day of the Passover. Two Hebrews hear the command of Moses to take a year-old lamb and sacrifice it, placing its blood on the doorpost and over the door of their homes. One man is fully assured that no harm will come to his eldest child, and in the busyness of the day, packing, getting ready to leave Egypt, he forgets to kill the paschal lamb and to put the blood on the door. But he's not worried in the least. He's certain the Lord will not harm his child. He's fully assured of it. Another Hebrew father hears Moses and quickly and nervously complies with all the details. But as he does so, he's extremely worried if it will work or not. He feels no certainty whatsoever. He only knows he had better obey. And so throughout the night, he anxiously awaits the hour of the death angel, and repeatedly he checks on his son to see if he's well. And when the Lord passes through the land and death comes, which house was spared and which was not? Was it the man's house who felt fully assured that no harm would come to his child, or was it the one who had obeyed and put the blood on his door with little to no assurance? And the answer is, of course, it's the second man, the anxious man who obeyed. You see, faith is the act of obedience. How then does faith grow? It grows by the experience of obedience. Have you faithfully done all that Jesus has commanded you? Have you done all that you know to do? Let me end the podcast with some practical suggestions on how to go about doing this. First, start with a promise that you have some certainty about. I think one of the best promises to practice, this is the promise of God's presence. Begin with learning how to practice the presence of God. Rehearse in meditation the promises of His abiding presence. For example, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. 
Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or what about John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 18? Jesus said, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Or what about the 23rd verse of the same 14th chapter of the gospel of John? If anyone loves me, Jesus said, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And then there's that blessed promise of Hebrews 13.5. Let your conduct be without covetousness, be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so my counsel to you today is learn to act like these promises are true. They are genuine, and therefore you should live in light of them. Engage the Lord throughout your day. Why? Because he's right there with you. Practice his presence, and as you do, you'll begin to experience him. Another suggestion to increase faith by experience is to start with an immediate need you have. Any need you have is an invitation from the Lord to engage your faith and trust in Him. So, I'm asking you, think, do you have a need in your life right now? I'm confident that God allows neediness, trials, and difficult situations for the simple fact of watching Him keep His promise to meet all of our needs. God has already created all your supply before one need arises. He has made everything we need before we need it. And this is a principle of God's kingdom. Before he made lungs to breathe air, he made the air to breathe. And before he made stomachs for food, he made food for stomachs. And before one sinner needed redemption, God had already sacrificed his son for us before the foundation of the world. Oh, friend, God's provision predates all of our needs. I don't think it's a stretch to say that God creates or allows needs to hook us up to his prepared provision. The Lord has promised that if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then anything we need shall be added to us. That's Matthew 6.33. So, If you have a legitimate need and not simply a want, then you should expect God to meet that need according to His riches and glory. So bring your need to God and commit it to Him. Whether you feel assured or confident it will happen, give it to Him and wait for Him to fulfill the need. I want to tell you a true story that I have firsthand experience illustrating this biblical principle. It was the middle of December 2016 on a Sunday morning that a dear sister in the church approached me. I had just finished preaching and closing out the service when she came to me and told me that she and her husband didn't have a working vehicle and they didn't have the money to fix their very old and dilapidated small truck. Someone had already given them a used transmission to fix that truck and... Days after the 30-day warranty on the transmission expired, the transmission expired also. So they indeed did not have the means to purchase another vehicle. And so she said to me she was praying that the Lord would make her humble to accept 
her and her husband's extremity and learn to be content without a car. That was her prayer request. Make me content to live without a car. Well, I said to her, sister, you're praying for the wrong thing. You're praying the wrong prayer. Of course, I startled her by saying this, and she asked me what I meant. I explained to her that she was not looking at her situation biblically. The Bible tells us that one of the ways we can know the will of God about a matter is to look at our needs. The Lord has promised to meet all our needs. Therefore, a need is a guaranteed way to pray according to the will of God and have the faith to receive what we ask for. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 say this exact thing. I then proceeded to tell her that in our culture, a person needs transportation, especially her husband, who was in very poor health. A vehicle that runs is a necessity, simply because the way we live, we live so far out from things. It's nothing to get in the car and drive 30 minutes to a doctor or to the grocery store. She looked at me with an unmistakable expression that said, you know, I've not thought about it this way. Well, I told her, let's you and I make a compact to pray for a new car for you. It'll be something you and I pray about, and we will trust God to supply. She agreed. One month and a half later, early February of the next year, I talked to this same sister on the phone, and she was crying. She told me that someone had just left her house and had given them a wonderful late model Honda Odyssey van, and not only that— but that their auto insurance had also been paid for the first year on the van. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think her confidence in God dramatically increased? Well, of course it did. And now, by that experience, her knowledge of God's faithfulness has increased, which means her faith was strengthened. And that's the biblical way faith grows. It's not about trying to increase your sensation of assurance— Instead, it's growing in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, before we sign off today, let me once again remind you that you can get my book, The Fight of Faith, How a Christian Can Experience Assurance of Salvation for a Reduced Price of $9.99 while we are discussing faith on the podcast. Now, this book is not just about assurance of salvation. It'll also help you on how to use the faith you do have to experience more of the Lord Jesus, thus making faith grow. Just go to our website, realtruthmatters.com. That's realtruthmatters, all one word, dot com. And follow the links to secure your copy. We also have an ebook format that you can download, and we're hoping to release soon an audiobook version. Well, thank you so much for tuning in today. If this podcast has been a blessing to you, why not tell one person today about it and share how they can discover the Real Truth Matters podcast? On behalf of all of us here at Real Truth Matters, May the Lord richly bless you with His love in a real and tangible way. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Truth Matters podcast. I hope you can see that Christianity is profoundly experiential, but always based on the objective truth of Scripture. If you have questions or comments, please send them to our email address, web at realtruthmatters.com. That's web at realtruthmatters.com. 
Real Truth Matters podcast, dedicated to biblical spirituality, demonstrating where the Bible and real life intersect.